But there is one way in this country in which all men are created equal. There is one human institution that makes a pauper the equal of a Rockefeller, the stupid man the equal of an Einstein, and the ignorant man the equal of any college president. That institution, gentlemen, is a court. It can be the Supreme Court of the United States or the humblest JP court in the land or this honorable court which you serve. Our courts have their faults, as does any human institution, but in this country, our courts are the great levelers, and in our courts, all men are created equal. So said Atticus Finch, one of the main characters in Harper Lee's novel, To Kill a Mockingbird. Atticus was an attorney in 1930s Alabama, charged with providing a defense for Tom Robinson, a black man who had been accused of assaulting a white woman. The progress of the novel makes it clear that the charges against Robinson are ludicrously false, and they were racially motivated. And while many people in uh, the town saw Atticus as a traitor to his kind, his willingness to stand up and provide a defense for an ultimately doomed man makes him one of the most noble and beloved characters in American literature, and perhaps the only likable attorney in the canon. Just kidding, just kidding. In all seriousness, lawyers might make good targets for jokes, but the American justice system seems to depend largely on the availability of attorneys who can and will mount a defense for the accused. So imagine that you were charged with a crime and faced with a serious sentence. It's highly unlikely that you would have the expertise necessary to navigate the court system, to negotiate the rules of evidence, to mount an effective defense for yourself. In that scenario, you would need an advocate. You would need a lawyer who could vigorously defend your interests. For this reason, the assistance of counsel clause of the Sixth Amendment provides this, that in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. The clause enumerates five distinct rights that accused people have. The right to the counsel of choice, the right to appointed counsel, the right to conflict-free counsel, the right to the effective assistance of counsel, and even the right to represent oneself. You can see why this is so important to the cause of justice. Without a legitimate defense, the accused would just be steamrolled by the system. This means that lawyers are occasionally called upon to offer up a defense of someone that they find problematic personally. So in 1770, violence erupted in Boston and five American colonists were killed by British soldiers. Eight soldiers were arrested and placed on trial for murder. And not surprisingly, it was hard to find an attorney who was willing to defend them. One man stepped forward, risked his reputation and his career to serve as their defense attorney. John Adams was hardly a British sympathizer, but he mounted a vigorous defense of these soldiers and actually won before a, a hostile jury of American colonists. Later on, Adams reflected, he said his defense of those men was one of the most gallant, generous, manly, and disinterested actions of my whole life, if he does say so himself. <laughs> 
and one of the best pieces of service I ever rendered to my country. Well, in our passage for this morning from John's first letter, we will see that while you may never find yourself in a court of law accused of a crime, there will stand a time when you will find yourself in need of the help of someone who can mount an adequate defense for you. And in his love, God has provided everything that we need so that we can be spared the sentence that we deserve. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. And this morning, we're going to consider together verses 1 to 6. So 1 John chapter 2. Please listen as I read verses 1 to 6. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So as we think about these verses together this morning, let's see two things. Let's see first the prohibition against sin, and then second the provision made for sinners. So the prohibition against sin and the provision for sinners. So let's start by looking at the prohibition against sin. You see that there in uh, the beginning of verse 1. John starts by saying, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. You see at the outset, the Apostle John has an affectionate relationship with his readers in the church. He addresses them using a term of endearment there. He calls them my little children. Remember, John is most likely quite old at the time that he's writing. It's very likely that the recipients of his letter were much younger than he. And this also represents something of a a slight turn in his attention. If you remember in chapter 1, it seems like John was really focused in on his opponents, on these false teachers that had fractured the church. And it seems like he's been addressing their doctrinal errors. And now, while he's still going to be concerned with those false teachers, he's making his appeal directly to the members of the church. He's addressing them as my little children. And here John tells them the purpose of his writing to them. He, He says, look, I've just written these things for this reason. If you don't remember, those things, right, he says, I am writing these things there in verse 1. Well, these things are what he's just talked about in verses 6 to 10 of chapter 1. So if you look back there, it's been a couple of weeks, but in verse 6, he says that we must not walk in the darkness. In verse 7, he reminds us that the blood of Christ cleanses us from sin. In verse 8 of chapter 1, and again in verse 10, he tells us that we can't claim to have no sin in our lives. And then in verse 9, he 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 reminds us of the promise that God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us when we confess our sin. 
And so it seems here when we get to chapter 2, verse 1, that John is concerned that we don't take those things that he's just written and misunderstand them. Right, there's a twisted way of reading John's words there at the end of chapter 1 and deciding, well, okay, I guess it's fine to sin. After all, John says right there, no one can claim to not have sin. And he also says that God's going to forgive us. Jesus' blood is going to cleanse us. And so it's not really a big deal if we go ahead and sin. Or right, let's say that you had a, a card that, that automatically got you out of a speeding ticket. All you had to do if you got pulled over was to, to hand this card to the officer who pulled you over and you'd be free to go. This weekend I had a road trip and uh, had Captain Joshua Louder along with me and I thought to myself, I'm bulletproof here, right? If I get pulled over, I'm sure Joshua knows the guy, right? Even if we're in Pennsylvania. So I think all cops know each other. And so, hey, I'm, I'm out of any ticket, right? You could imagine if you had a card or if you had Joshua with you, that might make you less than vigilant about minding the speed limit. After all, you have nothing to fear. You have no, no ticket coming your way, no points on your license, no reckless driving citation can touch you. But John here doesn't want us to use God's grace, his forgiveness, as an excuse to be lax about sin. So he says there in chapter 2, verse 1, the purpose of his writing is in fact so that you and I will not sin. This is really a foundational idea, one that, that John is going to come to over and over and over again in his letter. First John is a, a bit uh, different than a lot of other letters in that uh, oftentimes, especially if you're reading Paul, he starts at the beginning and he makes a sort of a linear argument that builds and, and flows. John, if you read First John, he kind of he circles around. He kind of keeps coming back to different ideas throughout the letter. So we're going to see this idea repeated throughout First John, that the mercy... And the, the cleansing love and forgiveness of God, it was never intended to make us less concerned about personal holiness. It's actually intended to make us actually hate our sin. So the question is, is why? Or, or like, why not? Why shouldn't we just say, hey, I've got to get out of speeding free ticket here. Like, let me go this, as fast as I want to go. I mean, you, you know that's the right answer, right? You, you don't open the Bible. You don't come to church expecting to hear that sin is no big deal. But, but why is it exactly that John doesn't want us to just relax and, and stop worrying about sin and just enjoy God's forgiveness and even, even celebrate it by sinning all that we want? Well, John gives us the reason in the rest of our passage. If you look there in verse 3, he says this. He says, by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. John's talking here about knowing. He wants us to know, to have assurance, to have certainty that something is the case. And what is that something? Well, he wants us to know that we have come to know him. That is, that we've come to know God. John wants us to know that we know God. And to be clear, to know God is much more than to know a lot of things about God. Right? You can go on the internet and watch videos of, of a climb of Mount Everest. Right? You can read books written by people who've climbed Mount Everest. You can talk to people who have climbed Mount Everest. But if you've never been to the peak, if you've never seen that view with your own eyes, if you haven't felt the wind and the temperatures 35 degree, degrees below zero, you don't really know what it's like to climb Mount Everest. 
And in the same way, you can read the Bible and you can study theology. You can listen to sermons and know all the right answers to all the most important questions. You can have sophisticated positions and complicated ideas about theology. But that doesn't mean that you know God. To know God is, in John's words, to have fellowship with him. There in chapter 1, verse 3. To know God is to, is to walk with him, to delight in him, to love him, to experience his grace in your life. It's not just knowing things about God, it's knowing him the way that you know a friend, knowing what it is that pleases him, knowing what his love and kindness feels like. John says we can know God like that, and not only that, he says we can know that we know God like that. How? Well, he says it right there in verse 3. If you keep his commands, that's how you know that you know God. Now again, don't be confused. John isn't saying that our obedience to God's commands creates a relationship with him. And he's not saying that a sort of cold, formal, external compliance with the letter of God's law is somehow proof that we know him. What John is saying here is if we truly keep his law, right? if, we, if we obey his commands, which Jesus defined as, a, as an obedience that springs from our hearts, from our love for God, John's saying that is convincing evidence that we know him. You see, the promise that God made to his people was that in Jesus, he would transform them. Right? We, if you step back, we were all created to reflect the image of God. According to the Bible, human beings were made for the most glorious purpose imaginable, to display to the universe the character and likeness of God. We were meant to be like perfectly polished mirrors so that you could look at a human being and you could see the love and the beauty and the holiness and the creativity of God. Right? We were meant to shine like the moon. Right, there have been some massive moons in the sky recently, right? Incredibly bright. Right, but the moon doesn't shine with its own light. It just reflects the light of the sun. And in the same way, we are meant to be brilliant as we reflect God's glory and character in our lives. But sin has warped that reflection. Now, if you look at my life, if I look at your life, we don't just see God's beauty and holiness and creativity. We see lots of other things. We see pride, selfishness, immorality, deceit. And so what God has undertaken in Christ is to restore that image in us. It's a work that begins when we come to Christ, when the Holy Spirit dwells in us and unites us to Christ. It's a work that will be completed when we are finally with him in heaven. But part of the way that we live out that growth in godliness is by keeping God's commands. When God's people hear how it is that God wants them to live, right, when he gives commands, right, these commands aren't arbitrary and random. They're aimed at showing us what the image of God looks like. When God commands us to be honest or, or faithful or forgiving or patient or kind, right, those, those commands are, are related to his image. They lead us to reflect his character, that's why there in verse 6, John says that if we abide in Christ, that is to say, if we are connected to him spiritually, we're going to walk, right? We're going to live out our lives in the same way that he walked, in the same way that he lived. 
Right? What John is calling us to in, in this chapter is not random obedience to arbitrary commands. No, what God wants for us is for us to look like his son, to be restored to that image that we were created to be. And we do that by, by keeping his commands. So you see the point John's making there in verse 3. If we know God, we will keep his commands because those commands are part of what God is doing in our lives. As we'll see over and over again in 1 John, the salvation that God gives us in Christ, it's not something sort of inert and lifeless put on a shelf, but it transforms everything about how we live. So much so that John can say there in, in verse 5 that God's love is perfected. It's completed. It achieves its ultimate purpose in us when we keep his word. God's love is meant to make us obedient to his commands. John's writing here so that we will not sin, so that we will respond to God's love and grace and forgiveness and mercy with obedience. I think there's two ways we should apply this truth to our lives, what John is saying here. First, I think it's obvious that we need to look and see if our lives give evidence that we know God. We should look to see whether our lives are characterized by keeping his commands. I think it's possible that in a church like ours, where I think we, we generally take sin seriously, broadly speaking, we take a, a dim view of ourselves as sinners, Right, in comparison with the holiness and glory of God, it's possible that we can spend so much time sort of thinking about those ideas that we act like we can never please God. We could never keep his commands in such a way as to have confidence that we know him. But again, the promise of God's new covenant is that his spirit will transform our hearts, that we will actually want to do the will of God to keep his commands. Right, Just like we saw the, the Thessalonians uh, last week that Seth told us about, right? We can show love in a way that's actually pleasing to God. And so we should be able to look at our lives and see some evidence of the life of God breaking through in our conduct, in our thoughts, in our emotions, in our words, right? There, there should be, if you know God, there should be a desire in you to not sin, John says, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. That, that should sound like good news to you. There should be some desire to keep his commands, to walk the way that Jesus walked, to reflect God's image and character more and more. Christian, remind yourself that obedience is not a chore. It may be made difficult by the sin nature in us, by the, by the world outside of us, but it's not a burden his commandments are not meant to be oppressive. Oh, God's law is a gift to us. It's a way for us to show how we can live out the fact that we know him. The second thing I think for us to see here is what John says in verse 4. He says they're kind of the flip side of what he's been saying. He says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. So verse 3, he says, this is how you know you know God, if you keep his commands. Verse 4, the opposite is also true. If someone says they know God but doesn't keep his commands, that person is a liar. It's likely that here John is taking a shot at the false teachers who had gone out from the church. 
They claimed to know God. They claimed to be the ones who could tell the people in the church how to know God. But John is pointing out that their lives don't appear to support that claim. He says, look, if someone's not concerned with keeping God's commands, right, maybe these teachers were just in it for the prestige or the power or the money. But if they don't care to keep God's commands, John says they are liars. And no matter how eloquent and how convincing they are, John says the truth is not in them. Right? The point is clear. Don't listen to them. Right? No matter how plausible sounding their arguments may be. John says if their life doesn't match up, then they don't know God. And brothers and sisters, I think this is really important for us to remember. Because we, like John's original audience, need to be careful which voices we're listening to. Right? There are a lot of voices out there. Voices inside the church, voices outside the church. It could be that there's been no time in human history where God's people have more access to more voices of people who say that they know God. But it's important that we're careful to make sure that we only listen to people whose lives are in conformity to the commands of God. That means that we as a church congregation need to be careful that anyone who serves our church, particularly in a capacity as an elder or a pastor, someone who has responsibility for teaching, we need to make sure those people meet the qualifications laid out in Scripture, which are broadly that this person needs to keep the commands of God. It also means that if there's a popular teacher out there, maybe on the internet, maybe on television, books, podcasts, but there's something about their life that just doesn't seem to match up. If they seem to be unconcerned about being godly and keeping God's commands, then no matter how charismatic they are or how many people follow them or how many people claim that their lives have been changed by them, you should be very careful, very hesitant. According to John, the truth just isn't in a person like that. The way we know that we know God is if we keep his commands. And the way we know that other people know God is if they keep his commands. If anyone says they know God but doesn't have any concern to keep his commands, John says they're a liar. The truth isn't in them, and you shouldn't listen to them. Okay, so that's our first point, the prohibition against sin. I want to move on and look at our second point this morning, and that is the provision that God has made for sinners. So look there at the end of verse 1. John says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Again, as we go through 1 John, we're going to keep feeling this tension. John expects that the Christian life will be characterized by significant obedience to the commands of God, significant growth in holiness. But he also understands that sin is going to be an ongoing struggle for the believer and that God has made a provision for us in Christ. John has no problem holding those two truths in tension, and so we're going to have to do that as we go through. So having been told there in verse 1 that he's writing to us so that we will not sin, he says there in the middle of the verse, but, however, and if you're like me, you breathe a sigh of relief. Because while being a Christian means obeying God's commands and walking in the way that he walked, this life is also characterized by an ongoing battle against the sinful flesh. We find ourselves at times doing the very things that we hate. 
And so if the only thing that John had to tell us was, don't sin, well, then we'd be lost. Right? We'd have only two choices. We could just give up altogether, right? Because who can do that? And just give our lives over to sin and immorality because no one can keep that standard, John. I'm writing to you so that you won't sin. Okay, John, too late. Or our other option would be the path of legalism, right? Where we redefine God's commands so that they're external to us, so that they're achievable with a little bit of discipline. I'm writing to you so that you won't sin. Okay, so what you're saying is, don't wear that, don't eat that, don't watch that, don't drink that, don't say that. Okay, don't listen to that. I can do all those things, John. All right, now I feel good about myself. Now I can fool myself into thinking that I don't sin. But in his love, God has a much better plan for us than either one of those two options. We don't have to just say, well, I can't do it, so I might as well sin. And we don't have to fool ourselves and pretend that we are able to keep God's law perfectly. In his love, God has a much better plan. He has a message for us that goes beyond don't sin. John says, if anyone sins, so that's you, that's me. He says, we have an advocate. The Greek word that John uses there is paraclete. If you've been around church, that might be familiar to you. Three times in John's gospel, Jesus actually calls uh, the, the Holy Spirit that he's sending uh, a paraclete. A paraclete, originally, it's not a strictly religious term. It's just a Greek term uh, that was used in the courts of law to indicate someone who stood as a defense attorney for someone who had been accused. So John here is framing our sin in forensic terms. He's putting us in a courtroom. The picture is that your sin is a violation of God's law. And so in a very real way, we all face charges for our sin. And the case against us, unfortunately, is airtight. Right, just stop for a second. If you were given the task of prosecuting you, right, of demonstrating to the court that this person, you, in the mirror, is a sinner, just think about the case you'd have. Right, think about all the things that you've done that you shouldn't have done. Right, the cruel things you've said the gossip, the bitterness, the anger. Think about the ways you've hurt people, even if you didn't mean to. Think about the things you've done that you'd be ashamed for other people to know about. It's a pretty strong case, but we're not finished. Think of the things that you should have done, but either because of cowardice or indifference or ignorance or laziness or lack of love, you simply left those things undone. Add into that all the things you don't know about yourself, the things the people around you see but don't want to tell you, right? Things that you don't know because you're clueless or self-deceived or self-righteous or you've simply forgotten about them, right? Put all of those things together, you have a pretty strong case against you, don't you? A pretty dire situation for the defense, right? If the question before the court is, has this person kept God's commands, has this person been faithful? Does this person deserve God's approval and favor? Well, the jury would return in under a minute. No. And deep down, I think we all know it. 
We, we know we don't match up. We know we aren't what we should be. We know that there's a standard out there that we're not meeting. And so we all stand accused and guilty. We stand on the wrong side of God's justice. And so you see how wonderful it is, how amazing the news is when John says there, you have an advocate. You have an advocate with the Father, he says in verse 1. You aren't on your own. Your defense is not just your problem. You're not left to figure out some way to negotiate this system to get a good outcome. You have someone on your side. You have someone defending you. You have someone working for your interests. Can you feel some sense of relief? Can Can you feel how good that news is? The question is, who is that representative? Is he some harried, underqualified, overburdened public defender? Right? Is this advocate that we have up to the seemingly impossible task of getting us out of this mess that we're in because of our sin? We'll look there at the end of verse 1. Who is our advocate? No one less than Jesus himself. John calls him Jesus Christ. Christ, the the Greek word for the Hebrew idea of Messiah, right? John's reminding us that Jesus is the anointed king sent by God to redeem his people from their sins. Your advocate, Jesus Christ. He calls him there at the end of verse 1, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We might even say the righteous one. Right, the word that John uses there is one he uses four other places in this short letter. Each time it has to do with righteous behavior. The idea isn't just that Jesus is righteous in who he is, but he's righteous in all that he's done, in all of his conduct. Right, John mentions in verse 6 the way he walked. And here we're reminded the way Jesus walked was always righteous. He kept the commands of God perfectly with complete, perfect righteousness. And so we can be sure that he is qualified to serve as our advocate. He's welcome before the bench. He's in good standing with the court. The judge is his father. There in verse 1, we have an advocate, uh, John says, with the father. They're on good terms with one another. There are no pending charges against Jesus. When he stands up to defend us, everyone in the courtroom, including the judge, smiles. Friends, this is good news. You have an advocate. John is saying here that sinners are not left to face justice without any help or any assistance. Again, imagine you're on trial for a crime and your attorney comes in. Let's make it a capital crime. And you definitely did it. You are guilty. And your attorney comes in and he says, don't worry, I've got this. And you say, what on earth are you going to do? The judge, he's my father. We've already worked this out in advance. But there's a problem. What defense could possibly be mounted on our behalf? Perhaps in a human court, there could be some room for strategy. Maybe there's a loophole to be exploited. Sometimes guilty people get set free. Maybe there's a problem with the chain of custody when it comes to the evidence. Uh, Perhaps reasonable doubt can be introduced. This person has a twin. Maybe their twin did it. 
Mitigating circumstances could be pointed to. Right? They were mistreated as a child. They had a, a mental health issue. They weren't responsible for their behavior. Maybe even an unscrupulous attorney would be willing to suborn perjury in order to get their client out from under the charges against them. But what hope, what, what defense strategy could possibly lead to our acquittal if we are on trial before the God of the universe in the throne room of heaven? Right, if the judge is God the Father himself, right, as John indicates there in verse 1, right, at Jesus is our advocate before the Father, so if the Father himself is our judge, right, if the case against us gets stronger every day with every sinful thought and attitude and deed, right, we're not getting off on a technicality here, right, there are no loopholes. There's no way that justice could lead to our acquittal. So while it's good to have an advocate, it's good to have a defense attorney, but in this situation, there's no case. There's nothing to work with. But look at what John says there in verse 2. He, that is Jesus, our advocate, the righteous one, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is our advocate, our defense attorney, representing our case before the Father in heaven. But that's not all that he is. John tells us that he's also the propitiation for our sins. Here John's shifting the image a little bit. We're leaving the courtroom behind and entering the temple, right? The propitiation is the language of a priest offering a sacrifice. It's a big word, but the concept is simple. To propitiate is to win or to secure or to, to regain the favor of someone by doing something that's pleasing to them. So husbands, when you anger your wife and you bring her roses later, you are propitiating in some way her righteous anger against you, right? To, to propitiate means to take someone who's angry with you and make them happy with you, usually because of a gift that pleases them. And so here we're told that Jesus is the propitiation for our sin, right? Our sin creates a rift between us and a holy God, our creator, right? Our lifelong commitment to living for ourselves in a myriad of ways means that we're not on good terms with him anymore. He is holy in his hatred for sin, and so he is rightly angered at sinners. But Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. In the original Greek that John's writing in, there in verse 2, John uses a word that emphasizes the fact that Jesus himself is our propitiation. It's as if Jesus is saying, not only is Jesus our advocate, not only is he our attorney, he's also our case. He's the argument being made for us. He is the evidence presented on our behalf at trial that will ultimately lead to our acquittal. Well, how can that be? John doesn't say right here in these verses, but he's already told us. Back in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, we read there, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The apostle Paul tells us in Romans 3, 25, that, that God the Father put Jesus forward as a propitiation, he says, by his blood. This act of appeasing the Father and securing his favor for sinners 
It comes through the blood of Christ. Here, blood stands in for the death of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is our propitiation in that he gave his life for us on the cross. As Jesus hung on the cross in shame and agony, God the Father placed on him all of the wrath, all of the punishment that we deserve because of our sins. Jesus bore all of that in our place, and he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. He ascended into heaven, and now he serves as our advocate before God the Father. And when he pleads our case, when he calls for sinners like you and me to be restored to the favor of the court, when he calls his heavenly Father not to be angry with us, but to be pleased with us, he doesn't look to a loophole in the law. He doesn't hope for some lapse of judgment on the part of the judge. He doesn't look at anything in us. No, our advocate simply points to his wounded hands and feet. The claims of justice against sinners like you and me have been satisfied at the cross. There, the punishment that we deserve has been endured. Our, our sentence was served in full by the Lord Jesus on the cross. And so, brothers and sisters, as we conclude as we approach the Lord's table together. Let me briefly point out just three things that we should notice about what John's saying here. First, what John says here is the only way that God can be both just and merciful. Throughout the Old Testament, attention builds up as we're introduced to the character of God. On one hand, the Bible shows us that God is unimaginably holy, hating sin, giving justice to those who do what's wrong. But on the other hand, we see that God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and quick to forgive. And it seems that there's no way to reconcile those two realities. But what we see is that God has reconciled them in his son. In the death of Christ, propitiation is made for our sins. The holy wrath of God, justice, is satisfied because Jesus endured it for us. Now, there's nothing but mercy left. Now, the claims of justice actually work in our favor, working for our salvation. How could you possibly be punished for your sin when Jesus was punished for it, when Jesus took it all? How could you be sentenced when Jesus has already served your time in jail? Propitiation is the way that we can be justly and mercifully forgiven and accepted by God. The second thing to notice here is that propitiation is a work of God himself. We have to be really clear about this, because if you get it wrong, this is going to make it really hard to have a relationship with God. What you don't want to walk away from this passage thinking is that God the Father is a stern and angry judge. But Jesus is a loving advocate, and he convinces his reluctant father to love you. Brothers and sisters, a thousand times no. If you don't understand this, you don't understand anything. 
Jesus is our propitiation because God the Father sent him to die for us. God the Father set his love on you and he sent his son to die for you and to be your advocate, to be your propitiation so that you could be accepted into his family. Jesus' work on the cross has its origin in the love of God the Father for sinners like you and me. Right, John 3.16. What does it tell us? That God, that is God the Father, so loved the world that he sent his Son. A bit later on in this letter, in 1 John chapter 4, we read this. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Does Jesus love you? Yes, and amen. But it's the love of God the Father as well that sent him to die for you. Jesus and God the Father are not on opposite sides here. Jesus is not convincing an angry judge to do something he doesn't want to do. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was not a brilliant endgame designed at foiling the Father's plan to destroy you. No, it's actually a way to fulfill the Father's love so that you can be acceptable to him. And the third thing I'd want to point out is that this truth ought to shape our lives. It's not something to be filed away on some shelf wherever you keep bits of orthodox theological information you don't plan on using. No, this truth, what John shows us here, ought to change everything about your life. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then what this shows you is that you have a desperate need for what God has provided in his son. John says there in verse 2 that Jesus is our propitiation, not only for the sins of his original readers, he says, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, I think it's clear that John doesn't mean to say that the sin of every person in the world has been paid for by the death of Jesus. That would be out of step with the teaching of really the rest of the Bible. And even in this letter, in 1 John 5, 12, John makes it very clear no one has eternal life unless they have Jesus. Instead, what John seems to be pointing us to here is that Jesus' death, the, the propitiation that he made, was meant for people all over the world. It is sufficient for everyone and anyone who would ever come to him from any place in any time, anyone who would ever put their faith in him and rely on him as their advocate. So friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus, why would you delay? What's your plan to deal with your sin? Is your hope simply that maybe God won't care? that he'll be too busy focusing on somebody else to worry about you, that he's not going to do anything about the the claims of justice against you? But if that were the case, then Jesus wouldn't have needed to die. He wouldn't have needed to be a propitiation for our sin. All of his suffering would be pointless. Jesus died because the justice of God is real. And he died because the love of God is real. And so if you will turn to him in simple, humble faith, he will be your advocate. This amazing salvation is available to the whole world, including you. 
and for those of us who are already followers of Christ, then John's words here mean that you have an advocate and that that advocate is also the propitiation for your sins. And so your sin problem, brother, sister, is solved. It is done away with. Yes, sin remains. It indwells for this time. But the punishment, the penalty of sin, the power of sin over you, it's been destroyed. If you are in Christ, if he is your advocate, you have nothing to fear from the righteous judgment of God because your sentence has been served already. Your debt was paid in full at the cross. There is nothing standing against you because Jesus took it for you. So Christian, are you, are you burdened by guilt and shame? Do you read verse 1 where John says, I'm writing these things so that you won't sin, and all you think is, I've messed up again. God must hate me. I'm such a failure. Do you, are you weighed down by a nagging sense that, that you're not enough, that God's not pleased with you? Do you have a sneaking feeling that God may have been willing to love you at some point in the past, but your failure, your weakness, your sin, it somehow worked you back into his disfavor? Well, if what you're telling me is that you're a sinner, then I have good news for you. If we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Propitiation has been made for your sin. You can't ruin this great salvation because it was never born out of anything in you. It was born out of God and his great love carried out and achieved and accomplished by his son. So it's not a good and a holy thing to just simply beat yourself up over your sin. Yes, John is writing so that you and I will not sin. And when you see the beauty of God's salvation, when you see that you have an advocate, Jesus, the righteous one, the propitiation for our sins, it should make sin look ugly to you. It should make sin repulsive. The thought of your advocate bleeding and dying on the cross for your sin should make you hate your sin and make you want to put it away. Right? The death of Christ is the ground of our fight against sin. It's the source from which our holiness flows. But when you sin, all is not lost. God has it covered. The pleasure that he takes in you is not compromised by sin because it's founded on the death of his son on your behalf because his love for you has its origin in him. So we shouldn't be paralyzed by guilt and shame. We're not frozen when we have to admit that we've done something wrong. We're not hopeless in the face of our failures. Instead, we're made into worshipers. Our sin makes Jesus our righteous advocate, the propitiation for our sins. Our sin makes Jesus all the more precious to us, all the more wonderful to us. Our failure makes his love all the more extraordinary. Our guilt makes his sacrifice all the more amazing. So brothers and sisters, let's come to the Lord's table together to remember his death for us, and to enjoy the fellowship and the forgiveness that we have in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we delight in your love. Though we have offended your justice in so many ways, that we've failed to keep your commands, you 
in your great love, sent your Son. Lord Jesus, we praise you as our great advocate. That you would stoop to love people like us, to defend us, to stand in our place, to, to even be the propitiating sacrifice for our sins is a love that's far beyond what we can comprehend and far beyond what we deserve. Holy Spirit, would you help us to walk as the Lord Jesus walked? Would you help us to respond to this love by turning away from sin? Spirit, would you help anyone here who doesn't know the Lord Jesus to put their trust in him today, to see their need for an advocate and to turn to him? Spirit, help us to walk free from sin, free from guilt and shame and fear because we have such a marvelous salvation. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.